Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Rodcast. I am here today with Siam Kidd, who is owner or founder of The Realistic Trader. Uh, I've got to be honest, I don't know a huge amount about what you do, apart from that you are the go-to expert on everything digital and cryptocurrency. And you've been putting out quite a lot of um, really interesting content over your social media channels in the last few weeks about what's happening with the COVID-19 crisis. So do you want to just give a quick intro as to yourself and what it is that you do um, so we can our listeners know a bit more about you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've basically been a trader for 15 years. So I'm a currency trader. So I wouldn't say necessarily I was a, a crypto, the, the go-to crypto expert. I, I think when I, I look at wealth generation as a, as a whole thing. So um, I always find it a bit weird in the self-help, uh, self-help space where you have, you know, property trainers going, property is the only way to get rich. Then you have traders going, trading is the only way to get rich. And then you have I know Amazon selling, podcasting, YouTube, like the, like everyone thinks everything is just like a one-stop solution. But when you, apply, so I apply first principle thinking to everything. Um, Aristotle came up with it. Um, Elon Musk is a good, uh, probably the most, um, is the easiest example of a modern day sort of first principle thinking. And when you do first principle thinking to, I guess, money or wealth generation, you'll find that you should never pin pigeonhole yourself into one thing. So you have to understand where you want to go in terms of how much money you want, how much, you know, what sort of lifestyle you want. And then once you know your A to B, you then need to choose, okay, what time frame do you want to do it in? Most people just put their head under the sand and default to, I know, in 40 years time, I hope I'll be all right, which is, uh, insign- it's, it's quite foolish in my opinion. And it, oh, it's financially irresponsible. And so once you know your A to B, then you come up with your desired time frame, 10 years. Five, it's pointless saying I want to go from A to B in one year. You have to be realistic. So I think it's always good to start with, I guess, a 20-year vision, a 10-year mission, and then, you know, two, five-year sort of tactical plays, I guess. Um, and so once you know the journey, then you can sort of establish, okay, what is the CAGR that you need? So the compounded annual growth rate that you need to get from your A to A to B. And so for me, I, it probably sounds bad, like seeing as, you know, a lot of people are struggling at the moment, but I guess 10 years ago, I, I did this whole thinking. I was like, okay, I want to get to X amount of net worth by, uh, well, over the next 10 years. So I looked at the CAGR and the, it, was, it was ridiculous. I needed something like 150% or 250% compounded annual growth rate. So I looked around the world, I was like, okay, what makes 100 to 200% per year and came up with nothing? Like, there's nothing really. I mean, there are things, but then obviously you exacerbate the risk if you want to, you know, put the hydraulics under the, the return. So I then sort of expanded my time frame. I thought, okay, let's look at 20 years. And if I do well, I'll probably do better. And then I realized, okay, well, the own, I got it down to about 50% 
Kaga. And I was like, okay, well, absolutely nothing on, on the planet does that other than business. So, I mean, by, by, by this time, I'd, I'd already been trading a lot. So I quickly realized, okay, actually, I, I'm in the stage of my life or my wealth journey where I need to primarily focus on business. So I got into setting up, running, growing, and selling businesses. That's the full cycle. Most people set up and run a business, and then that's it. They get stuck. They never make profit, or they make some profit, but they never do the full cycle, which is the growing and then the selling part. So once you do that cycle a few times, all of a sudden business is no longer a risky play. Like a lot of people looking at getting into business, oh my God, I'm going to lose everything. Well, I would approach it with the mentality of, okay, you're going to set up 10 businesses, nine of them are going to fail. One of them is going to end up chucking you out at least a hundred grand a year. That's still a good risk to return ratio. Um, and so once you have a profitable business or even better profitable businesses, you've then got some income streams then when you look at those income streams then you can start to play around with different things so ultimately i would say my best skill is i'm a trader um i'm a, an above average business owner or well, i'm above average small business owner there's a big difference between enterprise businesses and smes um and i guess i'm an above average investor i'm just doing what in my Siam opinion hat on thinks is the best thing for me at my particular stage, which will probably be not good for you or other people. So hopefully that makes sense. Does that? That, that does make a lot of sense to me. Um, one of the things kind of I talk about a lot is in any form of investment, whether it's investing into your own business and things like that, you're not just looking at the reward versus the risk, but you're looking at the effort that needs to go into it. And I think, yeah, uh, can't remember who it was now that we, we did a podcast on quite early on and what we talked about was the CAGA of the difference between early on in your business to later in your wealth I think you called it a wealth journey um, yeah and how that differentiates because when you've not got a lot to lose your risk level and maybe effort levels are very different to yeah. when say I don't know you might have um Family, kids, and mortgage. And some, and some, and some kids and, and things like that. And you've got dependents. And also, you might be a bit older. So you might not have the drive and energy and passion yeah. to be able to jump onto something. Um, so I think that, that, that's key. It's like that old uh, question of if someone gave you 100 grand, what would you do with it? And that should be very different for everyone, depending yeah. on what their personal situation is, how much of that 100 grand is how much of their net wealth is made up of that hundred grand. Yeah. So, um, so that's a great intro. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts then with what is happening at the moment with this COVID-19 issue. Obviously it's, it's affecting. Yeah. I'm not sure anyone that it's not affecting. Um, the whole world is kind of been taken in by it. What, do you feel is happening right now in terms of the economy and certain investments? So I'm, I, I'm not very good with words, but this is the beginning of an economic shit storm. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm playing it down a bit to be fair. So what we're looking at is a mix of another subprime mortgage collapse and a, uh, an extent or uh, another great depression so i think it's something very similar to 2008 and 1929 rolling together um but except we've got a lot further to fall this time 
um, and everything is more interwoven as, as in the, the derivative spider web is so ginormous it's, it's it, you can't comprehend it it's in the yeah it's it's in the quintillions um sorry um quadrillion sorry not even the trillions now like yeah so uh, that is yeah it's we're in for a lot of economic pain which i don't think people are aware of at the moment um so i i guess as a trader i'm well i'm a study i'm i guess i'm a student of money and as such i have i've been a big student of economic crashes so looking at everything from a trading perspective which is what i do um markets move 3.3 times faster going down than going up okay but when there's a crash markets move 10 to 20 times faster going down okay so traders typically if they if they know how to trade a crash they make all of their money in the shortest period of time during crashes now to the average joe out there that's probably why they think traders are like blood-sucking vampires but it is really not like that i think it's just a lot of misinformation uh, out there so uh, because of the way I, so again unfortunately the whole financial industry has um got everyone believing that you know past performance isn't a future indicator or isn't a, a, a predicator of future performance etc now to a certain extent that is true for let's say you're evaluating a new fund yes yeah you can't go by past performance typically um but when it comes to big macro trends you have to look at history history is your only guide um history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes really freaking well but normally with a sinister tone and the only reason history does repeat itself on a big scale is because in a world of ever-changing variables humans are the only things is the only constant we monkeys never change so it's us monkeys being idiots just with different technology, different times, different tools, we, we, we perpetuate the same things. So what you'll see now is that we, and I, I predicted this, I, I literally everything that's happened right now has come like to the, like, to the dime. Um, so we've had the shock. Um, so I guess there's four stages of a big crash or big depressionary type crash. You have the shock, uh, you have the reaction, you have the deflationary scare, and then you have the inflationary outcome. So the shock is always some sort of black swan event, uh, something left field, some sort of external risk event. Um, you then have the reaction, uh, which is where we are where we are right now. So the markets absolutely sell off, uh, like we've had recently. It's the biggest equity crash we've had in history. Sorry, the fastest we've oh. had. We've no, we've no, nothing's dropped thirty percent faster than the twenty twenty crash um, in in equity history. So indice index history um so and and what happened and i called this on facebook probably a few weeks or a few weeks ago is that um you always have a, a relief rally or a stim pump so a stimulus pump so and this relief rally typically retraces 30 to 70 percent but normally if you look at the median it's about 50 percent so you have this big old crash scares everyone um everyone goes ah the governments go everything's fine everything's fine um, but we're just going to pump a few billion dollars or pounds into it very casually. We then have, and, and politicians are so fixated on this, on stock prices because they know that's what the public, pub, the public think rising stock prices equals booming economy, but they are, they're, they're disconnected. It's actually inversely related. Um, so 
they tried to pump up stocks. And where we are right now, we, we've literally, as of yesterday, we hit the 50% retrace on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So we are literally, we're on that dead cat bounce and we're about just, to roll over. I should just say that it's the 10th of April that we're recording this. So people <laughs> yeah. are looking at, listening to it a bit later on and thinking, wait, hold on, this isn't what's going on right now. Uh, this is the 10th of April. So yeah, these, these yeah. are from there. It's, um, it's, it's crazy. So there's been unprecedented, oh, I'm sick of the word unprecedented now, but I can't think of another word. There is unprecedented amount of stimulus that's being in the pipelines and also being launched. Um, however, it's irrelevant. It happens all the time. We will see that rollover and we will take out those lows. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I don't want to go off on one, but I, I, that's, I guess, a big nutshell of what, what's happening at the moment. Can I ask you some questions on that then? Okay. So, um, obviously, we had the shock, which was the whole pandemic, which we're still seeing at the moment. We've had this rally, uh, which has come up to 50% now. And then you talked about the deflationary scare and then inflation going forward. So deflation, from my point of view, would be, right, we're looking at people's wages and disposable income, and they can't now spend as much as they could. We've got businesses that are struggling, maybe not... Uh, the stimulus that the government's throwing out isn't reaching certain industries, certain businesses, certain individuals. So again, they're not able to spend that money into the economy, which obviously helps the next man. Um, is that is that kind of on in your line of thinking, or sort of? Everything you said is correct. Um, I I'm just looking at this from a sort of a macro point of view. So there's a I'm going to have to go off on a tiny tangent just just get um, explain a few base knowledge things because then the whole thing makes a bit more sense. So first of all, um, we need to talk about nominal debt and what else do we need to? We need yeah, how currencies. So first of all, debt is nominal. Okay, so the reason so deflation is every economy's or every politician's worst nightmare. So because basically, if you owe a million pounds, you owe a million pounds, right? But if we have deflation, um, let's, I mean, if you look at the Great Depression, it, nominal um, uh, income dropped by 52%. Let's call it 50%. So if you owe, owe a million pounds and you're fine with your current income to service that million pound debt, if all of a sudden your income halved, all of a sudden servicing that million pound debt, you still owe it, even though you're owning half, uh, you're earning half of your income, it's yeah, you still owe that debt. So debt stays the same regardless of what happens. So that's why politicians love inflation, because you can lever up to the hilt and then hope, aim for that magic 2% per year inflation because compounding interest just inflates all your debts away over time. And obviously the biggest holder of debt is the government's. Government, yes, yeah. exactly. So that's why they love that 2%. Um, yeah, so for example, and, and I mean, people think, oh, it's only 2% per year, but you hit exponential growth through compounding interest. I mean, human population growth is about 1.8% per year, and human population is in exponential growth. It's just a longer time frame, obviously. So we're in that vertical hockey stick. So that's the first thing. So that's, that's why every country is scared of deflation, because, yeah, basically they get kneecapped and they can't service their debt. Um, so the other thing which not many people are aware of is how currency is actually created, um, or currency and money. Um, Let's be more precise and use the word currency. Um, so, it's so every or pretty much all currency on the planet is debt. 
so the way that the stupid open market operations that the government goes through when it borrow when it you know creates bailouts or whatever it, it's actually debt so what happens is a government bond is then sent to the treasury the treasury then turns that into the treasury bond and then sells it to um or it goes up for i guess an open market opera um, auction i guess um and effectively the central banks convert take on that that um bond and then they through the commercial banks it turns into money or currency so it's actually the retail and commercial banks that actually press the ones and zeros and then enter that's where the currency comes from so if you take out a hundred grand loan uh, uh, or a mortgage that bank that lender is literally creating money out or currency out of thin air so that's monetary inflation now when you pay back a debt let's say you pay off your mortgage over 30 years or whatever what happens is so you've expanded the currency supply when you when you take out the debt or the mortgage when you pay it off or if you default on the debt what actually happens is it gets wiped out and then you have monetary deflation. So you're shrinking the currency supply, hence deflation. And now, I guess, when you've got people trying to pay off their debts, that's actually not necessarily a good thing because that helps the economy. Push yeah. The deflation, yeah. Yeah. So they're the two sort of base knowledge things which um, that you store that in the back of your head somewhere. So what, so here's the def, um the, the deflationary scare. So there's another side tangent, which is ERISA. Have you heard of ERISA? No. So this is another converging sort of time bomb, I guess. So ERISA is, is, is mainly in the US, but obviously we need to focus on the US um, stuff because when they sneeze, the world catches Ebola. And they have, um, the, and they have the, uh, the peg as well. Of the yeah. Dollar. The 70% of the world's wealth is held in their currency. Pretty much, yeah. So the... So ERISA is, I think it stands for the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. So long story short, uh, when a baby boom, or so when someone hits 72 and a half years old in America, they have to, by law, uh, withdraw an amount of their, um, their savings or their, their pension. Uh, half of all US pensions are index linked. So this is trillions of dollars, by the way, trillions. And so what's happening now is all baby boomers are literally like bang in the center of about 70, 70 and a half or was it 72 and a half years old so the the second biggest demographic on in human history is now by law being forced to withdraw from their from their ira their um their pension so what happens is they're looking at their their pension and holy shit i owe I, i'm worth nothing ever you know especially due to what's happened now we've had that big old drop um wiped out like 10 years worth of savings whatever um and so a lot of them, they don't just take out the, you know, the, the mandatory bit. What a lot of the um, baby boomers are doing now is literally just liquidating the whole thing. They're like, shit, I can't play the long game. I can't literally bury my head in the sand and hope that in 15, 20 years time, the market will recover. They're, you know, they, they need that money now. So they're getting out. So economics 101, when money's extracted from a market, market goes down, vice versa. So money's being pulled out. So that's one little sort of very heavy thick weight on i guess the stocks at the moment um also what we need to have so but but we're not in the deflationary scare yet we're still in the reaction phase yeah. and you have to understand human sentiment when it comes to the deflationary scare because um Snowballs. because sorry yeah basically people are scared now that i mean the, the stock market would have capitulated by now. It would have, you know, taken out the first lows, and it's now falling off a cliff. 
like towards the back end of 2008 where everyone was literally scared. Um, everyone stops, anything index or stock related is basically in the gutter. Everyone's scared. So what happens is people's sorry, spending habits just change. One, just one point on that, sorry to interrupt, but do you think then with this rally that sentiment is not being kind of pushed the other way? No, not at all. Everyone's like, ah, oh, everything's fine. Markets rallied, like, um, you know, had the biggest rally in recent history. You know? <laughs> like when you look at what the stocks have done in the last week, it's been one of the biggest rallies in, in history. No, that's, that, but that's what I mean. So are people not now thinking, well, I won't withdraw it because it's rallying? Yeah, some, some are duped by that. Some aren't. Um, so yeah, this is why everything, everything's in, I guess, limbo at the moment. No one's really scared. No one's, no one's shitting their pants yet. Oh. When we get into the, yeah, when we get into the pants shitting phase, um, that's when people's spending habits change. And so now, uh, so what happens is they, they turn into massive hoarders of say, they, they, they become massive savers. So this is why I think the, um, new government stimulus won't touch the sides because they can print all they want. They can give us every grant and paycheck and Corona business interruption loan they, they want. Um, what are we going to do as business owners and just normal people? We're going to go, thanks for money. We're just going to put it in, We're just going to save it, whether it's in cash or in the bank account, whatever. Can I, can I ask so, a question on this? So in Japan in the nineties, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what happened, right? 1988. Was, top of the yeah easing, throwing loads of money at it, and everyone saved their money, they held on to it. Now, do you think there's an argument to say that the culture in Japan 1990s versus the culture in the UK, where no one can save a penny or hasn't saved a penny for a long time and everyone lives a bit hand to mouth, which is showing this, we're not even a month into yep. this and it's already happening. Do you think there's and there's an argument there to say, well, actually, the cultures are very different. We are not in that saving culture and people are used to spending. So if there is helicopter type money stimulus getting into the hands of the end user, that they will then use that. And that could be different. And also maybe the quantity of easing um, stimulus now has been so very quick in reaction, whereas I think in Japan, it was sort of three years later, it started kind of printing. Do you think there's any argument for it being a slightly different scenario like that? No. no. The UK, the US public hasn't experienced the pants shitting phase yet. Um, in fact, it's a generational thing. We have no, no real generation has experienced that proper. I mean, we were close to getting to that sort of stage in 2008. Um, but they they concocted all sorts of um, you know packages and things to basically just prop, they they massively kicked the can down the road. Um, nothing was collapsed. Iceland is the only entity that did good things during two thousand eight. They jailed all the bankers. Yeah, they got, absolutely. They reset everything. Let, let's just quickly. I know we keep going off at tangents, but you're saying some yeah. really interesting stuff that I just want to kind of jump on. Um, you just mentioned Iceland. There, one of the big things is well, let's not bail out anyone. Um, and let capitalism run its course uh, is one point. Yep. And the, the other point is, you've talked about 2008 and kicking the can down the road. Essentially, um, this could be, well, do, is what happens now dependent on the government's reaction? So normally, 
I can't remember who said this, it was someone like Ray Dalio said, the tools to get out of a depression are austerity, uh, wealth distribution through taxes, printing money, um, and wiping debt, all, all that sort of stuff. So is it the case that the government might just go, well, let's kick the can down the road and continue the Ponzi for another until the next recession? They're trying or, right now. Yeah, yeah exa exactly. And but it won't work. And why do you think it won't work this time where it did work in 2008? So you everything basically is controlled by the central banks. Uh, a central bank has two levers. They have the interest rate lever and the printing more currency lever. And so they, had, they basically had two rounds in the chamber, basically. You can only use them once. So in 2007, 2008, everything was falling down and they were like, and Ben Bernanke was like, Whoa. Was it Bernanke back then? I can't remember. But um, they're like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? Uh, let's do the rates lever. And they just hammered rates, okay? So rates, interest rates are like an accelerator of a car. Yeah. You drop the accelerator, car goes faster, etc. So they hammered interest rates down, okay, and to try and stimulate the economy, make borrowing cheaper, blah, blah, blah. Oh, nothing happened. Oh, shit, what do we do now? Um, okay, one lever left. Let's just print, print, print. And if you look at the monetary base, in 2008, it went from 800, so it took 220 years to get $800 billion in existence. And it went from $800 billion to $2.4, $2.5 trillion in like that, in the space of a month or two. It was ridiculous. And it's been going on ever since. Um, it's well beyond $10 trillion now. It's ridiculous. So basically what they've done is they firewalled those two levers and there. I mean, the, the negative rates are across the world. There's zero rates pretty much in the US and the UK right now. Uh, they cannot use that lever. That lever's gone. So now they've got the other lever, the printing currency lever, which is firewalled. Um, they, they, they can drop it. I mean, they can go negative rates. Yeah. Um, they can do it a little bit more. But uh, currencies, are, all economies and currencies are underpinned by confidence. It's the only thing that underpins stuff. So, but the reason why it won't do anything is because it's all about the um, the velocity of currency. So, basically, the whole Western world is done, uh, has a Keynesian economics type of thinking, and they believe in trickle down economics, which is bullshit. So they're thinking they're oh, if the, so, what the central banks are trying to do when they're trying to print and do quantitative quantitative easing um, is it trying to flood the market with so much cash and liquidity that it trickles down into the public. So they're giving it to the banking sector and relying on the banks to trickle it down. The it's banks like, go, interruption I'm getting there, yeah. Yeah, so they're like, thanks for all this, you know, cash. Um, yeah, we'll give, yeah, we don't really want to lend to the public because they're risky, which is exactly what we're seeing right now with the corona business interruption loans. Like, it's a 1% success rate. The banks are not loaning it to anyone unless your business is going great guns now. But then does that not bring us back to that other point of let some of these businesses fail that are not good businesses um, and let those industries fail because at the end of the day, it's going to come back to those people that need it and that will redistribute that wealth. But then on another kind of related point, there's so many different points in this, which is great. Yeah, no. <laughs> Cover them, cover them all. Um, we talked about kind of the, the government having the interest rate and the um, and the quantitative easing measures. What about what America's doing now in buying up corporate bonds and what they seem to and be junk bonds? 
Yeah, exactly. And it looks like they're going to be trying to do um, to somehow get into equities as well. Do you think that will help? And also, what about we talked about the the, um, the money getting the trickle down from the banks to the people? What about if the government start to do something like helicopter money, where it actually goes right? Every man, woman, and child's going to get X amount to to live on until businesses are up and running. Yeah. Do you think that's likely? Do you think that would work? What are you? So there are a few questions there. I'm trying <laughs> to remember. Um, so first of all, helicopter money doesn't work when you're in either the reaction phase or the deflationary scare phase, the, and it's because of the humans um, changing money mindset so we're now so what said so helicopter money would work an absolute treat if they did it in january yeah or february pre-crash because what happens like if you cast your mind back to february we hit all-time highs in the stock market you know off the back of 10 nine years of the biggest uh, rally ever everyone was like happy if all of a sudden governments around the world went here's helicopter money that may have staved off a lot or, yeah, and, and if everyone would have just bunked that into cars and holidays and whatever. Um, but then it, there's another argument saying, yeah, it would have just made the, the all-time high a little bit higher before Corona came and crashed it. But, so that's one thing. So when you're in the deflationary scare, which we're not in yet, um, you can have all the helicopter money you want. People are not going to spend it. And the reason that helicopter money or quantitative easing, all this pumping is there to do is, is to increase the currency velocity. Not many people are aware of that. So currency velocity is basically where they're trying to get the public to spend, spend, spend. Exactly. If they're hoarding it, the velocity is zero. And so you can give people, you know, loads, but eventually what will happen? So th there's a fine balance here. So they'll, they'll bring out, you know, UBI, universal basic income. They'll give grants. They'll rebate every tax you've ever paid in your life. They'll give your, your pet dog 10 grand just for being a dog, I don't, whatever. Helicopter money is by, by that. They will literally try and give, they'll, to try and pump as much capital to the actual public as possible um, to try and get us simulated to, to, to buy and go and do stuff. Now, here's the crux. They'll do that. They'll, you, the, the moment you get there and then people start going, actually, yeah, I've been saving for the last few months. I've now got 50 grand the government's given me. I feel safe now. So what they then do is they go and start spending. So some people just blow it on rubbish stuff. Some people buy, you know, whatever. But what happens is that all of a sudden that built up pressure, that money that's just been hoarded, then just like the floodgates release and into the economy. And that's game over. That's game over because you then have price inflation. All of that money goes towards the same set amount of assets or stuff out there. Prices, price is a sponge of uh, currency is a, a currency sponge so if there's way more currency like if i don't know i've got a bottle of water here let's say it's a pound a bottle let's say that i've got a tenner you've got a tenner you know it's a pound a bottle you know in our tiny economy of 20 quid gdp or whatever um if all of a sudden we both have a million quid and one of us is thirsty what is the price of this bottle it's going to be like 100 grand like price is a sponge of economic stimulus basically so when we get to that so when helicopter money gets to the point where everyone is spending that's game over that's when we hit big inflation then hyperinflation just look at venezuela argentina um and yeah so that's one question what was the other question government's buying bonds junk bonds equities How yeah that, that will just delay 
it just ex extends the overall crash. So that what, is why crashes last two years and not two months. So what, how long, okay, so that's my next question was, what do you think the time frame between deflationary and inflationary phase would be? Oh, that I don't know. What I do know is most crashes are 18 months to two years, mm -hmm. um, even the worst of them. Um, I don't know. Okay, going back to the... You need too many variables. Going back to the inflationary, um, price inflation, do you think, well, two questions here, um, do you think that it will be inflation of price and um, what will happen with things like unemployment? Will we hit stagflation? Um, will GDP go up? And secondly, linked to that, what will happen with interest rates? So um, unemployment will stay down. Um, basically what happens when you see, when you have proper, depends if, you hit, if we hit big inflation or hyperinflation. So if, if you ever do helicopter money, helicopter money always results in hyperinflation. Look at the Weimar Republic, look at Zimbabwe, look at everything. They, every country follows the same, like history does repeat itself. Um, so unemployment stays down, businesses stop. Like if you looked in Zimbabwe, like if you went to a pub, by the time you finished your pint, the price had doubled. Mm -hmm. um, that's how crazy it was. And so businesses just stop. Or, or, or what they do is they add massive markup because they know that they need to, because when they need to resupply, the price is going to get crazy. Now, I'm not saying we're going to hit hyperinflation, um, but it's, it's a reality. I mean, economists forever have said negative rates are impossible. Mm. Um, and I even had an argument with a, a London School of Economics professor. I said, actually, no, this was like, I don't know, eight years ago. I said, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's going to be a reality at some point. And you're like, ah, oh, poppycock, rubbish. Well, guess what? Most most of the world is, you know, negative rate. Well, not most. Many countries are negative rates. It's real so, negative rates. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something like 50-odd countries in the last 50 years that have had hyperinflation. And lots of them were big developed nations. So, so what do you think, um, under an inflationary environment like that, do you think GDP will start to rise or no? Oh, yeah, it will, because, you know, a pound will effectively be £10, but okay. has the same... But yeah. That's going to be nominal inflation, so... Um, yeah. So, in real terms, real GDP, will that... No? No, I think... Don't forget, we are now in a completely new paradigm shift, because the never in history has a country... No, not just one country, a whole world been told to drop tools. Like, it's never happened. 2008, 2001, 2008, 2001, 1966, um, 2000, uh, 1929, the public were not, the public and businesses were not told, oi, you're under arrest, as in house arrest, go home, stop working, effectively. Like, what's happened is that we've basically kneecapped our, you know, our, our engine. We, we, this has never happened before, and people do not understand that, like, the only thing, the only thing right, that can get you out of a, a recession or a depression is economic growth, okay? So this is... Yeah. yeah, the only thing that can pull us out and get back to everyday, normal everyday, everyday life is economic growth. You cannot do that when we're all under house arrest. You know, I mean, yesterday, was it yesterday, I think, the US, like, 
um, released their new jobs data, um, unemployment data. In the last three weeks, 16.6 million people have been made jobless. Many of them won't get their jobs back. Um, many businesses won't recover. I've got, I've got interest in nine businesses, but I, I'm, I've, I've run five businesses. Um, I've had to furlough 50 staff. Um, I've had to shut and close a few businesses down or I've had to pause them, you know, put them in suspended animation, I guess. Um, and like some businesses, I probably won't even reopen. Just I'm loving lockdown life. It's way more chilled. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, yeah, so you cannot, um, we're screwed. It, all of my, I guess 90% of my research over the last month or so is, is why am I wrong? What data am I, am I not aware of? You don't know what you don't know. And it always goes back to the basics. You, growth, economic growth is the only thing that gets us out. And we, we will, we're nowhere near that. The, the ramifications of what these lockdowns are doing haven't been represented into the markets yet. And the markets, so one, some people might say, well, the markets understand this and, and seem to be coming out, seem to be rallying and there's a reason behind that. But I'd kind of argue, well, the markets didn't price the whole lockdown and crashes in until it was too late. Um, what, I mean, what do you think then is the way in which the economy can get jump started again? What can governments do? Unfortunately, there's a lot of pain that requires it. So, so first of all, and by the way, this is if I was leader of the world, let's say, and I was I was tasked to you know fix it all up. Um, this is what I would do. Now, I'm not saying it's pretty; it's not. But you have to do certain things. Like if you've got gangrene in a limb, mm -hmm. like you have to lob it off. Otherwise, it spreads into the body. It's, it's, it's very similar like that. So first of all, we're, we're in crony capitalism at the moment. So it's like capitalism, yay. And then every 10 years, socialism has to bail capitalism out. It's not real capitalism. So all of the companies that are going bust, you let them go bust. You let Virgin go bust. Debenhams in administration now. You let everyone go bust that needs to go bust. Do not waste precious taxpayers' money on entities which are not um, efficient and profitable. Like... That like that that's one thing. You have to have a, a full reset. Any anything which isn't good, you just gotta just and, lob it. And, and on, that, on that point, um, and sorry again because you're you're okay. saying some great stuff, so I want to keep jumping in. Um, people might then go, well, hold on. What about the I don't know six thousand employees that Virgin have? But I'm I'm actually in agreement with you that the people that are going to get hurt won't really be the employees. They're they're going to be the People who have, well, it's going to be the debtors. People who have unsecured debt, firstly, will be will be screwed. The shareholders as well, but the employees will then come back into the system, and mm -hmm. and, and get money there. So I, I do agree with you on on that. So it's gone. Uh, typically, when a big business like that goes into administration, the people don't lose their the company pensions or the typically their jobs. What happens is that they get bought out, yeah. they get reacquired. Someone comes and collateralizes the debt or whatever, and then they keep their jobs. Yeah, like Thomas Cook. Yeah, Men, most Thomas Cook employees got their jobs back. Mm -hmm. well, so and so and so that's really a good example of some of the businesses that actually might or should survive this will be low leveraged businesses with decent balance sheets that yeah. actually provide an ongoing need so although things like we talked about airlines no one's 
flying at the moment, but they will be. So it's the ones that don't have these huge expenses and maybe the balance sheets that can survive this this part. And I think we talked about British, well, we didn't, but we mentioned British Airways before. Um, and one of the terrifying things is their burn rate every month. I mean, they're they're a well capitalized business, but their burn rate is horrific. And so all all airlines, I I wouldn't touch any travel company with a barge bowl. Yeah, absolutely not. Well, one of my best mates today sent a list in one of our private groups saying, "How hey, think of buying these stocks?" And they're all travel companies. And I'm like, oh, please, please, please don't. Well, the other point on, on the travel companies is if a lockdown is, is released, like if we're released from this lockdown, it's unlikely they're going to say, okay, everyone go back to work on, on Monday, it's, everything's back to normal. It's going to be mm-hmm. a stage thing. And things like airlines and transport or people where people are gathered in confined areas will unlikely be early, sort of um, early in that chain of events. So, they're, and they're not going to waste money going to Magaluf or whatever. They get they they've had, they've been somewhat scared, had a bit of a reality check, going ah that three grand or two grand that we're going to spend on our summer holidays. Actually, let's just we need just, to pay rent and buy food. <laughs> exactly, yeah. uh, and also air like airlines. Oh God, I, I, I'd be shorting them if anything. Like even in good times. A plane typically has to be 90% full to break even on that flight. And so now they're all gone bust. Loads of pilots are disappearing. Um, oh, they've had, like, there's no one flying at the moment, pretty much. Um, and so what happens, all these airlines are having to basically cut down loads of things. They're, they're trying to um, uh, reduce OPEX to um, elongate their cash, cash flow runway or the cash runway. And so what happens is that they're also losing economies of scale. The reason you can go to I don't know some country for fifteen quid return, whatever. It's because of the massive infrastructure out there and economies of scale. That is now buggered off. That's not going to recover. Um, so we are going to see like ninety percent of airlines disappearing, and it's all going to conglomerate into one big old thing. But yeah. So, but what you said previously, the unleveraged businesses are the ones that will survive. We work is the epitome of what. A business will not survive. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I, I interrupted you. So we talked about what are some of the things that maybe could be. Oh uh, yeah, be good to restart that economy. You said let these dodgy yeah. businesses fail and things like that that aren't aren't aren't, aren't safe businesses and providing that yep. need. What what else then? So that's so, the pain. You have to chop all heads of the hydra off. So basically the reason so the whole financial system is a massive ponzi scheme that no one is aware of well anyone that studies economics sort of gets it but the reason banks so the government whenever the government wants to print currency like the reason they have this this weird shell game where actually they have to get into shitloads of debt and that basically they owe the central bank that debt etc it's because 120, uh, 1913 is when the Federal Reserve was incepted. And the Federal Reserve model uh, back in 1913 has now is pretty much the same model for all central banks. So the Federal Reserve is a private company of private shareholders that pay pr- uh, dividends per year to their shareholders. It's a private entity. So every time the US government gets into, raises capital, it gets into debt to this private company. It's this weird, like, um, and we don't know who the shareholders are of the Federal Reserve. Now, 
Bank of England, sim somewhat similar, semi-private, semi-government. Um, but long story short, we don't need to do that, okay? So we need to get rid of the whole system where if a government wants to print currency or increase the currency supply, it doesn't get in debt. Because remember, currency creation is debt creation. Are, so, are you then suggesting but, something where we go back to something like the gold standard or... Yes and no. So what, first of all, you have, there's a delicate balance. So what happened, what has to happen? Well, basically, when you look at the whole global debt, who is it owed to? I mean, there's a comedian that said, you know, we owe quadrillions of dollars, whatever. Can't we just find the bloke and kill him and then chill out? Um, and well, that bloke <laughs> that owes, has all the debt is the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So the whole world is a debt slave to those two entities. Yeah. So the only people that can do a debt amnesty are those two entities. So what may, what probably happen, or not probably happen, what I would do, and it, it may actually happen, is that they'll probably do a debt amnesty and they'll wipe off shitloads of debt. They'll probably reduce, I don't know, chop off nine zeros. For who? Um, For and everyone? Everyone. So it has to be everyone. Mortgage, um, everyone. job yeah. payments, etc. Yeah, so it would be amazing, but also a double-edged sword at the same time. So what happens is you then, so let's take the UK government. We then need to completely abolish the pound sterling as it, in its current form. So what happens is you basically you let all the banks die and they will, I, I, I see banks becoming extinct um, over the next 10 years, as in the, the, the retail and commercial banks. Yeah. So they will all die, Barclays, etc. And it will basically be the government and the central bank left. And the central bank will be forced into retail banking. They won't like it, but they'll be forced. Or maybe companies, like, and a fintech company like Revolut will probably be the retail-facing front backed by the, the central bank. But what, what they'll have to do is they'll replace the, the, the sterling and with a government-issue digital pound, okay? So what they'll, and it's a fine act because, remember, you get rid of the debt, that's a shrinking of the currency but supply. It has to be like for like. How do you decide? It has to be like for like. So yeah. they go, right, okay, here are all the mortgages. Is I know $500 billion worth of mortgages. That debt is now eradicated. And on the same day, we're going to print $500 billion pounds of digital sterling. Yeah. And so what happens when your bank dies under Barclays goes bust? And let's say you've got 10 grand in your account. What happens is they'll go, okay, you had 10 grand. That's disappeared. But you now have a new e-wallet and there's now 10,000 pounds of e-sterling in there. So you haven't lost any money because you have to do this so you don't have civil uprisings and stuff like that. So you, I think what will happen is that the government probably won't go on the side of the banks this time like they did in 2008. They'll be out, outcry, like ridiculous outrage. So, so that will happen. I guess the downside... Do, do you think then banks will fail... For what exact reason? The so when it's not if when Deutsche Bank goes bust, they that bank has the biggest derivatives exposure on the planet. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like a group of people getting in loads and loads and loads of debt with each other. Yeah. But they all have external things, and when one of those people, when one of those people in the groups defaults, everyone else defaults. So you. So basically, the, there's a massive debt bubble. So not yeah. only is there a corporate debt bomb, there's, there's all sorts of debt bubbles at the moment. So Even though the banks are well capitalised with these reserves they're not, they've been forced to have? They're not capitalised at all. 
they're not well capitalized it's like like none what about the reserves that they've been forced to put in place since 2008 it'll probably be no more than five percent I doubt it's only more than 10% of reserves. So that directive was called was the Basel II directive. Mm. Um, and so one of those things, yeah, so then they're not, it, it's a massive, it's like a, like one of the big cons out there at the moment is, uh, let's say gold and silver ETFs. So an, a gold and silver ETF, you know, let's call it paper gold and silver. Yeah, yeah. Someone will, you know, the, these companies will buy, I don't know, one tonne's worth of silver and they'll start selling paper contracts of that silver to everyone else. But they've got one tonne of silver, but they've sold a thousand tonnes of silver. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a Ponzi. Um, it's the same with the banks. Like if you look at the if you look at M3, the biggest uh, you know number of currency out there, it's ridiculous. And then you look at what's backing it or even the base currency of base money, it's, it's nothing. I would be dramatically surprised if the banks are capitalized more than 5% of their AUM, assets under management or uh, exposure. It's, um, yeah, I guess the, another, so trying to put it, put it into five-year-old English. I, I have to think in five-year-old English. Um, imagine a seesaw. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if you put, I know, one ton of weight on this side, to balance out, you need to put one ton of weight on the other side, okay? What's the net movement? Well, the net movement is zero because you're now balanced. But what is the gross weight? You've got two tons now. So this happens and happens for 50 years. And then all of a sudden, you've got a million tons on one side. You've got a million tons on the other side. Bankers go, oh, what's, what's, um, what's net movement? Oh, zero. We're fine. We're hedged. Yeah, but you now got two million tons of weight, and then what most people forget is that the you know one of the the seesaw will break, the ground will give in, the I know the the plank will snap, um, and that's w where black swans come in. I, uh, corona is somewhat of a black swan ish, but it's not a proper black swan. Oh, I guess it is, but yeah, I, um, this sort of leads into I guess the property sort of crash. Can I sort of go into that Absolutely. or do you have other questions? So, so there are three things I think we need to, two things. We need to talk quickly about demographics and then, yeah. So we've all talk, already talked about currency. So, you know, currency creation is, is debt creation. Demographics is, a, is an important one. So the millennials are the biggest demographic on the planet by country mile way bigger than the baby boomers. And when you look at the demographic spending wave, it's like a bell curve and you hit peak spending, peak earning and peak consumption between the age of 35 and 45. And basically, uh, people, people, a demographic tends to start buying their first house when they're about 30 because they've been in the economic, they've been working for roughly 10 years. Uh, they've saved up money for, you know, 10 or five to 10 years. And they, they, blow that that's those those savings on a deposit of some sort okay so this is one of the reasons why we've had a massive property bubble over or boom over the last five years or so we've had millennials buying their first house i'm a typical millennial i'm 34 um so and that's also have, then that's have we had a boom over the last five years in real terms i, I don't know oh, no, yeah. yeah as in just look at property prices and everyone basically everyone has been buying homes and like so if you yeah, if you look at house prices over the last 10 years, over the last eight years, they've gone up. Yeah, they have, but they've come down the last three. Yeah, let's stick to the bigger picture just for the yeah. moment. Yeah. 
so basically every man and dog is man woman and their dog are but trying to buy a house it's then exacerbated by government incentives like the help to buy scheme you know 90 percent mortgages 95 percent mortgage or 100 percent mortgages as long as five or ten percent of it is backed by a guarantor blah 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 um, and so what happens is the it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that the more houses are sold on finance because that's basically what a mortgage mortgage is it's finance it helps keep property prices and the property game going but then eventually it what what we're falling into what we have fallen into is another subprime mortgage um potential collapse so you the moment sorry one point is there are more houses owned with no mortgages than there are with mortgages True, but you have to look at 90% of the, the, the biggest demographic are the 90% of the population that are, in most terms, oh, I don't want to say poor, but earning below 25 grand, etc. So, so, yeah, I do get your point. Um, because but, my, my point is kind of those baby boomers who a lot of them have no mortgages now will, event, will, will be dying and will yep. probably be leaving that money or the equity there to yeah. the millennials or possibly even the lot behind that who can then possibly pay off mortgages or do whatever they want with it yeah but eventually you you then have an external shock like we're having with this crash and what happens is that um the rate of mortgages or issuance starts to, to, um, reducing because like right now the whole property market ha is freezing to a halt transactions of nothing yeah yeah exactly and so what then and also people's um, i mean lenders lending criteria uh, goes up because they don't want more 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 debt i mean it gets to the point where like in 2006 you had the average stripper in florida owning like eight flats <laughs> um because they're like they just wanted to keep this mortgage um gravy train going um, so then you have the economic shock and that's when eventually you get into the point where people start saving money. And this is where 90% of the population who are, let, let's, let's say hand to mouth, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Um, they eventually will get to the point when we're in the sh shit your pants stage that they'll start blazingly defaulting on their rent and mortgage. Uh, they'll start just, yeah, they'll forsake their mortgage. Basically they'll, they'll, and just renege on their obligations with these mortgage holidays and certain tenants not paying rents where we we are exactly what, we, what we're having at the moment is just a sniff of what's going to come it may even become trendy to not pay your mortgage for some demographics um so this will then have a knock a knock-on effect with mortgage providers or lenders which then has another knock-on effect um to mortgage-backed securities because a lot of lending becomes comes from the market and all of that is collateralized and put into some sort of security, whether it be AAA or junk, most of it's junk these days, uh, that then tanks. When that then tanks, that knock-on effect, then like, no one lends it. We then have a massive grind. Uh, and when a, when a bank or a lender um, gets a house back because you know, they've evicted a house person, and it takes a long time to evict a mortgage default, et cetera, um, they don't, like banks don't, they're not in the property game to, you know, rent out. You know, what they do is they, they sell the houses because it's a toxic debt. They need to get rid of it. So 
I mean, they don't go to right move and put a house up. They do big bulk sales. They take, okay, we've got this bank. I've got 5,000 houses that have just defaulted. Shit, I need to get it off my books. Right, let's package it up into some sort of um, mortgage-backed security. Yes, we're junk bond. Let's sell the junk bond. So they sell thousands of houses in a, in a one Anyway, that's negative pressure on house prices. And then we'll have a, a, a slump. Combined with this stock market or this economic crash, it's, so it's just a shit show. Let me it's another 2008 in. subprime mortgage collapse. So let me jump in on that. So I, I don't completely agree with that in that I believe that a lot of the mortgages are different, more secure than they were in 2008 with loan-to-values, with earnings based on rental yeah. test, things like that. Slightly. But also it's a timing issue because a lot of these banks that are lending or even other lenders it's it's about the time it takes for that deflationary scare period that you've talked about to end because once that ends and that confidence starts and spending starts again then that's going to be over so it's it's really about riding that storm isn't it yeah it's just that there's a lot of extra things with this crash than there were in 2008 like 2008 was simply a subprime mortgage collapse, which then did pop a few stock market bubbles. Um, but now we have any, any one of the debt bubbles can pop and it'll pop everything else. So don't forget, we've got an auto loan back security crisis uh, as it's a subprime auto back, uh, auto, as in car loan. Um, yeah. More in the States, we have a student bubble. That's what $1.4 trillion bubble. We have a corporate debt bubble. We have a privatized debt bubble. I mean, look, take us Brits. We, we spend 150% more than we earn. We are the best spenders on the planet. We make the Australians in the US look silly. That's <laughs> my point on the culture, going back to my comment on Japan, hmm. that people have lived their whole lives used to spending more than they have. So why yeah. now? Why will this stop? Because of the, when this crash starts to properly fall, um, and everyone's losing their jobs, business is going bust, this, this is going to be the, the biggest reality check of their lives. Like, I'm not a fan of my demographic, as in, I'm a millennial. I, millennials, in my opinion, being big black tar brush, we don't have the work ethic uh, like previous generations did. We don't, like, you know, we're, it's, yeah, we are going to get one hell of a wake-up call. Um, however, the, like, in fact, I'll talk about this at the end. There's a massive, really lovely silver lining to all of this at the end. Let, let's wait to, to the okay. end. So I've got another question then. Let's talk about some assets in particular. So, and how they might behave in these certain environments. So obviously we talked about this deflationary scare going into the inflationary period. So you think in that inflationary period, you're going to have leveraged entities will do well. Um, if the leverage amount is is low so if as long as interest rates haven't risen up higher than that rate of inflation then they should be doing okay what about things like other equities bonds commodities obviously real estate is a big one for us and then let's talk about other currencies as well yeah is there anything specific in all of those that you think well hold on actually maybe gold might be really good for the next two years until that deflationary scare passes over or 
It could even be that actually let's look at bonds for that period or let's hold cash for that period. What, what, what are your thoughts on this? So when we get into an inflationary environment, economics 101 is that you need to basically convert your inflationary credits your inflationary currency into deflationary assets so and when i say a deflationary asset as in something that can't be inflated away so so real right asset. now sorry so do you mean do you mean by that like real assets then yeah so right now so again this is just my personal playbook my opinion yeah. i'm sure there's a million people that disagree with this right now going to cash is what you need to do Go to cash, get the hell out of Dodge. Get if there's anything in your life index linked, get the hell out of it. Whether it's your is it, your SIP is in some sort of bullshit mutual fund, like you need to get the hell out of anything stock related and bond related. Don't own a single stock. Literally, a good rule of thumb is it, if your precious stock, like a lot of people, are emotionally attached to their stocks, which is stupid. Um, a good rule of thumb is open up a chart, go to trading view, open up a chart and see how it did during the 2008 crash. If that went to, if that, you know, did poorly during then, guess what? It's going to do even worse this time around. Um, and there are not many industries or stocks that do well during crashes. I mean, um, a lot of people, I mean, there's a saying that, you know, tobacco and alcohol companies do well during crashes. Yes, yeah, some, not all of them. Um, so, yeah, I would just go to cash right now and that will give you pouncing money. So a good rule of thumb to know when, you know, you're near the end of the, I guess, the stock market crash is for me personally, I'm not going to buy anything until we have at least a 70, at least a 70% drop from top of drop to now. So we had what, a 39% drop, we've had a 50% retrace, we've got a lot of falling to go. Once we hit 70% total crash, what then happened? you need to start pound cost averaging in. What happens if you don't hit 70%? What happens if it hits 50 and then starts to go up and doesn't stop going up? Okay, then you go with the, go with the flow. You, as a trader, you trade what you see, not what you believe. Yep. Um, so if it looks like it's, it's going away, then there's still going to be bargains. So by, by going to cash, it gives you options, um, but you must not stay in cash because then it will be inflated away. So for me personally, I don't want property. I may want some land. You can't inflate land away. Um, Bitcoin, I'd, ha I'd definitely have some Bitcoin because you cannot inflate that away. If, if anything, after during the inflationary phase, Bitcoin will moon to the freaking moon. Um, moon to the freaking yeah. Um, it will moon. Gold will do very well. Um, it's, I mean, by default, it's a hedge against uncertainty, um, especially if the IMF starts backing their special drawing right. Um, I mean, there's a lot of chatter about um, the IMF, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole another hour interview <laughs> about the IMF SDR. Um, yeah, so gold will be good. Um, it will outpace most things. Um, I mean, if you look at the stock price to gold ratio, it's just ridiculous. Um, so that's good. And also for me, businesses, I, I, don't, I don't actually know what businesses or sectors will do well in a year's time. And by the way, the full ramifications of what was happening right now, we'll see in 12 to 18 months time. So buying now, buying businesses now, I think is a bit foolish. And I've got a lot of business buying friends that are like, ah, oh, let's buy some business. Well, no, you're basically gonna end up buying what you think is a bargain, it'll end up a nightmare. So, a couple of points on what you said so far. 
You said no property, but land you'd consider. What do you, how do you differentiate between the two? For me personally, the, like if you do this right, it will help you leapfrog your, your wealth, you know, met by many years. When you look at the big, the big trends, property's screwed. Because when you look at um, 3D printing, as in construction 3D printing, that is an exponential technology. Give that another five years, it's going to absolutely cause mayhem with property developers. Now, I mean, they can already build a 600 square foot house for $3,000 in three hours in America, which is nuts. Um, And that is like, at the moment, that tech is at the stage of the internet when it just created email. So it's got a a long way to go. But you still need the land to print houses on. So for me, and so the thing is, freehold land. That's what you're saying. Right? Yeah, I want freehold land. And so, for for instance, let's say it gets really good. I mean, let's say Taylor Wimpy survives, okay, and it still wants to buy, build big old, you know, industrial um, housing estates. But let's say they can now print a house for, I don't know, a tenth of the price it used to cost. Well, obviously they still need the land to print, you know, to print the houses on, etc. But what do you think that will do to house prices for every other house in that block? If you can print a four-bedroomed house all on suite, you know, same spec, but at a tenth of the price, like the price of all other houses will drop. Um, this I'm, I'm talking like 10 years' time, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, there's no time soon. <laughs> but, then, so, but if that's the case, surely it's the land that the house is built on that's important so they could just knock it down and rebuild. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I just want to buy shitload of land um but also when you also look at other exponential techs like virtual reality and augmented reality that's going to massively reduce travel it's going to massively reduce the need for cities um city yeah like people won't be so tightly dense densely populated in cities once virtual reality gets better and tas also comes out as in transport as a service um so again yeah i'm just bearish on property long term Short term, yeah, it may have the odd rally, but I remember I'm a, I'm in wealth generation. I'm looking at this big picture, and then short term, I'm trading the hell out of everything. So, yeah, so so, so that's that. I, I, I guess. Going back to the inflationary stuff, surely anything that's leveraged then would do well on an inflationary, as long as you get out before the the pop. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you look at Zimbabwe, there are loads of people that are levering to the hilts because they're like, oh, cool, you know, all my debts are going to be inflated away by 5 p.m. tomorrow. <laughs> and they were just buying cities and towns. But those that got out quickly, they ended up owning regions. And some that were too greedy just kept going and going, and then everything reset. And they're like, oh, shit, I'm now bankrupt. So the trick is to convert your cash into physical assets physical things that can't be inflated away bitcoin gold land and businesses cash good good businesses i think there's, there's a stat that from every recession investments that come out the best in the first two years of recovery are the high yielding businesses or high yielding shares yeah. or whatever it is that have decent quality balance sheets so those ones seem to seem to do well um so yeah what about like we talk about commodities would you put that in there as well yeah. because oh, it depends. they're real so it's, it's it's you're looking at certain things that have a value 
Um, I would say nickel for sure. Um, nickel, gold, and silver. Um, nickel, as in, because you need nickel is actually the main ingredient for for electronic batteries. So EVs, electronic vehicles are going to. Uh, I'm very bullish on. So nickel is the is the magic ingredient in a um, lithium ion battery, uh, not lithium. Like it's like one to one percent of uh, a battery is lithium. It's like the salt that you sprinkle on a salad or whatever. It's like, um, nickel is the main thing. So nickel, aluminium, I guess. But the main hard metals that they use in construction and industry, like steel, iron, copper, screwed. I've been shorting copper. And like, it's, yeah. Interesting. Not, it's, yeah, so and industry won't recover. Put it this way, China has 70 million construction workers. That China can't pay them at the moment. They're paying them in food stamps. Hmm. That's like bigger than the whole of the UK population. Um, like, and they've got the biggest property bubble in history. It makes the US one in, like peanuts. But um, can I end on the positive note? Yes, please. I think this depression will probably last about three years. We'll then enter a new phase of, his, um, of, of life, which will be the biggest boom that we've ever seen. Like we thought 2010 to 2010 was amazing or the roaring 2000s were amazing. We haven't seen anything I th like from 2023 onwards. It's going to be unfreaking believable. And the reason being is that, again, demographics. So if you look at Generation X, a very tiny demographic, they entered their peak bell curve, you know, the peak earning, peak spending part of their lives when they and they converged with one exponential technology the internet and look and they boom the internet and what, what, look what the world has done with one exponential tech what's happening now is that the millennials are entering their peak earning phase of their life whilst converging with about 11 exponential techs 11 not one so look what the world happened with one and we've now got 11 10 or 11 it's going to be unbelievable. And there's all sorts of techs that will mate and interlope that we can't even think of. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, combined with UBI. Um, I mean, UBI is a good thing um, in the long run. But, yeah, it's going to be amazing. It's just the next three years, we've just got to, you know, sort yourself out. And the, the better you do financially during this, this crash, the more people you can help on the other side. So please don't think I'm some sort of trader that's just obsessed with money. I'm not. I actually want to help lots of people. But the thing I find just frustrating is that you have all these people that, oh, yeah, yeah I really want to help. I want to help the world. I want to help charities, blah, blah, blah. But they can't even put food on their own plate. They're struggling financially themselves. You can't help that many people when you can't sort yourself out. So if you can insulate yourself and your family so, you, you know, you, you are stable and then increase your means like businesses, et cetera, and cash flow, you can then actually end up helping far more people. Um, so yeah, I will be going into charity in a big, big way in the future. But at the moment, I'm, I'm not done with my wealth generation phase of my life. So that's been brilliant. So how can people uh, get in touch with you? Um, I know you run a, some educational stuff on trading as well people are interested in that which i'm sure they will be after listening to this how can they uh how can they learn more um yeah, the realistic trader.com is where i am um if you type siam kid on youtube I've, i put loads of free videos on youtube as well um but yeah but yeah youtube and the realistic trader.com that's that's me 
That has been really, really interesting, Sam. Thank you very much uh, for coming on the show and uh, yeah. look forward to listening to more of what you've got to say. Yeah, sorry for having to run away. Yeah, cut it short. No <laughs> Great. Thank, thank you very much and uh, enjoy your dinner and the rest of the <laughs> You too, mate. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast. <laughs>